and welcome to There Are Other Ways, conversations about living life a little differently. This is a podcast for people keen to explore less well-trodden paths in life. I'm Fiona Barrows, a business mentor who helps creatives make their online businesses work. Hello again. Um, first of all, I'm so sorry that there wasn't an episode um, for you last week. As you'll know if you follow me over on Instagram, my guest this week and I had recorded a conversation back in August, which I'd edited a while ago. But when I did a final check of the audio last Sunday before uploading, I realised that the whole thing had scrambled. I tried re-editing it a couple of times, but to no avail, as I think the problem was with, was with the original audio files. Um, and as I... And as this is the final episode of the season, I didn't have another one in the bank to replace it with. I had originally planned for this season to be eight episodes, but a couple of interviews have been pushed back and I didn't want to rush to fill in the gaps. So instead, I'm going to call it a day this season, but I will be back in January with more conversations. I really didn't know what to expect bringing this podcast back after such a long hiatus. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who has reviewed and messaged and commented to say that they're enjoying and taking inspiration from these conversations. I really, really do appreciate it. Right, on to this week's episode, and it is with Sarah Layton from Growthfully, who was a client of mine for about 18 months or so. Sarah helps women create joyful gardens that support their mental well-being through one-on-one garden coaching and design. She is also the host of the My Garden, My Life podcast, in which she talks with women about their relationship with their garden and many other things. I'm very grateful um, to her for agreeing to re-record this with me, especially on quite a tight schedule. Our conversation ended up being very different to the previous one, but just as varied and interesting, and we covered a lot of ground, so I really hope you enjoy it. Fiona. Thank you so much for agreeing to um, re-record this conversation after we had um, a slight technical issue with the last one. Oh, it sounds such a pain, you poor thing, having to edit it over and over. <laughs> it was, it was, and then finding it hadn't. It, it was it was a little bit frustrating I will um I will admit um but anyway um but it's, it's it feels a bit weird we recorded the last one sort of towards the end of August when it was still very hot and sunny and now um now we're in full-on autumn and it's a very misty morning today oh it's not misty here oh actually. okay and I'm sitting in my studio and there's a duck outside that's just started to quack very loudly oh it's got you know when you can see a duck with its its beak actually really you can see it really talking. Yeah. <laughs> um I know what you mean. That sounds lovely. Yeah, I've got a moorhen and a male and a female uh mallard just outside. It just oh, keeping you company this morning. Passing me by. Lovely. Um, well, if we, um, should we get started? Um, and perhaps um, you just like to say a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm Sarah Layton, and I um, have a business way of working I call Growthly. And I help support women to make the most of their precious outdoor space, be it a garden or a balcony window boxes even I suppose um so that they can enjoy it and enhance their mental health and well-being day to day because we have these wonderful potential potentially wonderful spaces outside our homes if we're lucky and quite often people look at them and think I just don't know what to do with that Mm -hmm. and instead of enjoying it they feel guilty and it feels like it's all too much and 
quite often they'll go to the garden centre and buy plants and spend quite a lot of money and feel as though it hasn't really made that much of a change for the garden overall. So what I do is work with women to guide them through that process of creating a garden, establishing what it is that's going to lift their hearts, um, and then working with them to think about how that's possible, you know, what, what needs to happen to make the space they've got become the space they want. And along the way, I really enjoy using the metaphor, my garden, my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so the name of my podcast, in fact, it's become more and more a sort of theme in my work. Um, because the more I work with people, the more I realise that what we do anywhere is what we do everywhere. So what shows up in our gardens in terms of perfectionism or um, procrastination or, you know, those sort of behaviours, those sort of ways of being, are things that we do in our lives. And so it's a really lovely, gentle way of starting to notice something that maybe we haven't noticed about ourselves before. And that idea of making space in your life for yourself. I'm very, very keen on helping women to do that. And I do that through the garden. Okay, amazing. There's so much in there that I sort of want to sort of come back to and unpick. But if we sort of start with growthfully in your own sort of journey and how growthfully came about it was a it's a combination of um two of your two previous careers isn't it it is so in my time I'm now 54 in my time I have been a garden designer um more than a decade in London in the 90s and then I retrained and swapped careers and became a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and again worked for another decade or so um as a therapist and then in where are we 220 so 2016 June I found myself really unwell and I think I had an immune overload something just happened and I couldn't work as a therapist anymore I just wasn't well enough and so I I took a I took a leave of absence I took a six-month break and my clients went to other therapists And then when it was time to come back, I still wasn't well enough. And so I let it go. And whilst I was recuperating, I had the idea for bringing my two careers together and using the knowledge and experience personally of mental health with my garden um, know-how, garden know-how, to help women and it's women because from my own experience as a young mum I know the importance of making space for ourselves and the importance of maintaining our mental health and self-care and so that's how it came about so I had this idea and I I came up with the name of Growthly and have been working at describing it ever since (laughs) (laughs) learning to describe it ever since it's um it's a tricky one because I think it is something very unique so there isn't a sort of like a generic label that we can fall back on um because it is such a unique thing absolutely and I you know I've played with I've leaned and you've seen I've leaned over to garden design too much and I've 
sort of not owned the the, the psychoeducational part of it um, as much as I'd like to in some stages because I just thought it would be more easy to understand as garden design. But actually, it's such a melding together, the work I do with people. And when I, when I do coaching and sessions with people, we talk about what's going on with them personally because it comes up in relation to something we're doing in the garden. Mm. So it, it really is at that intersection between the two um, that, you know, that your work sits. Um, and you said um, at the very beginning, we were sort of talking about sort of how um, our gardens are these precious spaces and they can have such an impact on our well-being and our mental health. Um, why, why do you think that is? Well, listen, I mean, that's a many layered, many layered um, question, isn't it? Because it's, it's, well, there's the simple one of it's lovely to have our own private space where we can connect with nature, where we can get our hands in the soil, where we can feel a sense of ownership and decide what we want to do. We can be creative out there. We can enjoy the serotonin hit. It's been proven that there's a connection for us between soil and us and our, our um, is it hormonal? No, it's not hormonal. Serotonin. Um, is produced when I we think have serotonin is a hormone. Is it a hormone? Is it a hormone? I don't know. We'll say it's a hormone. <laughs> well, um, I feel like I do know, but you know, I'm talking now. I'm trying to concentrate. Yeah. So I might pick that one up. Um, but serotonin and dopamine are produced in relation to soil and and then there's the whole, you know, mindfulness. I invite people to get really present, to notice, to use the garden as a place to see and smell and touch and hear and taste. And then there's the level of producing your own cut flowers, producing your own vegetables, bringing it, bringing those things inside. So there's that whole sort of sustainability piece that's there. Is that is that enough? Yes, I mean, I think that's I think that is quite a lot. There's um there are there's a lot a lot there's of a lot of a lot of reasons. But you also said how sometimes, and I think this is something that a lot of people resonate with, is they just sort of have that feeling of overwhelm and of looking at their garden. And especially if you've it's your first house or you've never you've never had a garden or you haven't grown up around around garden gardening, it can feel very very overwhelming and not knowing where to start. Um, and interesting because, well, a garden, you know, you can spend a lot of money, you can spend a lot of effort, mm. get it wrong, get it wrong in inverted commas, but, you know, you can you can make something and then it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. Mm. Uh, buy a plant and it doesn't survive, it doesn't thrive. So there's sort of lots of potential for, for making mistakes in inverted commas, but for, you know, having to learn. And so what I do is help cut through all that. I guide people to to things that are going to work for them and help them work out how to use the space in a way that's answering what they are wanting. Mm. And so, and, and so they, I use the, the design skills to help them make space work, um, but also, also lead them through the process of making it actually happen. And I, what I do, I think, is fill in the gaps of knowledge. So I sort of point out the, the potholes and say, okay, so you need to watch out for this. And have you thought about doing it like that? 
Mm. Um, so I'm like a consultant or I call myself a coach, but I'm playing with consultants as well. Don't like it terribly, but you know, I do do consultancy. So yeah. Mm. And um, you said, um, another thing you said was that um, it's important for women, especially to sort of create space for themselves and they can do this through their garden. Do you, and you do work primarily with women. Do you think that it's sort of, and I, well, I know that you said this before, but it's sort of countercultural for women to put themselves first, perhaps specifically for your generation as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I don't feel it now, but for a long time, I felt like I was swimming the other way. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the things that came from therapy and gaining self-awareness and recognizing the many ways in which I was conditioned and just didn't even seem to notice uh, to put myself lower down the pecking order really and fill in the gaps and rescue you know look after people in a way that I think we're becoming aware of you know and I think more and more women are are aware of the fact that we need to say no and mm. we need to choose and we need to say yes when we mean it. Um, you know, when we say, I, I wrote a post recently, you know, um, say no so your yes has more oomph. Mm. As if we just say yes to everything. But it's not that easy to necessarily know what we want. Yeah, I agree. And, um, I think that we need to learn to tune into ourselves to actually be in connection enough with our physical selves to listen to the messages we get mm. because you know how we know when we need to go to the loo or we know when we're thirsty or we know when we're hungry or hunger sometimes for, for many women is more difficult but you know going to the loo and feeling thirsty we have a, a message that we respond to very easily for those mm. and those messages are available to us in all our interactions. So when we hone our connection with our physical selves and we know how to read the sensations in our bodies, we get really clear indicators as to whether we want to do something or we don't. And then, you know, we can choose whether to listen. You know, do you know what I mean? That Have you ever had that experience of you find yourself being asked to do something and you feel as though you really want to say no and your mouth says yes that's what I'm talking about yes and I think that it's one of the things I've always found difficult is saying no without an excuse like I'm quite I I am quite I'm well aware that I'm very introverted and I do have to be careful about the stuff that I'm a sociable introvert introvert I don't be careful about where I'm putting my energy um and I think that I've I, I, I can say no, but I always have to come up with an excuse. I can't just say no and just leave it at that. Just no, because I don't want to, or no, because it's just not, you know, it's not right for me right now sort of thing. Yes. Um, I always have to say, oh, no, because, oh, I, I'm doing this or something else. I think the saying no and just leaving it at that is very alien, alien to me. I think it can be less harsh than saying no and leaving it at that. Yeah. Um, and I know what you mean, that sense of needing to give an excuse. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like 
we owe ourselves to other people. And if we actually choose to decide, no, I'd like an evening on my own that night, it's not being socially acceptable to say that. And it's something that I think we as women would do well to practice. Mm. Um, I think it's becoming more socially acceptable, though. Yes. I feel that it is. And maybe that's more of a generational thing. So what stops you saying, actually, you know, that really doesn't work for me. Do you mind if we pass and I'll do it another time? Or no, thank you. That really doesn't work for me. I don't know. I think it's, I think I'm, I'm definitely better at it now. And I'm better at not getting my, not saying, I think the thing is, I think, I think I have learned that I end up, I did at one point say yes to everything and then ended up not enjoying anything. So as you say, you then don't, if you're, if I try and do too much socially, then I end up not enjoying any of it because it's just too much and I just get tired and drained. Um, So I am definitely better at pacing myself now, but I don't, I don't know what it is that stops me just sort of saying, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It must be a cultural thing, I guess. Well, I think that I think we are taught that. Well, when I was first training as a therapist, or even in my own therapy, I'm not sure. That idea of being externally referenced, you know, we are taught most of us hmm. to look to the outside for the messages as to how to be. Hmm. You know, parents will tell us whether we can have something, whether we can't, whether we should go to bed, whether we can, should eat that. Or, you know, it's it's like we're not really... And I think this is changing more and more. I'm sure there are people who are brought up differently to this now. But there is there is a, there is a, a gradual training out of responding to ourselves and recognising that our messages are the ones, the internal messages are the ones that we need to be paying attention to. Mm. and so I think I think it is a I think it is a taught a taught thing and it takes courage to to you know it's a muscle actually mm. to experiment with mm. and somebody might not like it but then you have to wonder well actually that's probably because they don't allow themselves to listen to themselves and maybe they're going to learn something from having this experience and, you know, you can be willing to talk about it. And so I think it's interesting. It is. It definitely is. And what, and you, um, you said, again, you said earlier on about how, um, and just sort of bringing it back to gardens is how gardens can help women with this process of creating space. How, how, how do you think that happens? So I think that happens because, yes, that's an interesting question. It happens because when we take the time to really connect with what we want and to listen to the messages I've been talking about and to start being, um, what's the word, discerning. Mm. I did a call yesterday with a woman who said she felt that she needed to honour the garden she'd inherited. Mm. And I thought that was such an interesting idea that even if it doesn't work for her, 
she's tied to the things that someone has chosen to put there before her. Mm. Um, and obviously we get into taking out a plant. People feel uncomfortable with that because you, maybe you're killing a plant. But I would say you could give it away. But, you know, going back to your question, when we start to be discerning and we choose, that's how we make space for ourselves. Mm. So when we, it's the same, it's the same process as we're talking about saying yes or no. When we learn to do it in our gardens, when we think, okay, well, this is going to make, and you know, we do it in our homes too. This is going to really enhance my life. I'd like to do this. And no, I really, that's not working for me. And we defend those decisions and we follow through on them and we make that internal space of, yes, I can respond to myself. I can do what works for me. Um, then that's, that's making space. Mm. So it's really interesting that you've just said what you said, because I spent the last... Um, couple of afternoons or sort of Monday Tuesday afternoon helping my parents clear their garden which they've just sort of they've just bought a new house and it's come with a beautiful garden that hasn't really been looked after for um for quite a long time and I was quite surprised at how and so I spent some time with my dad sort of clearing away there's lots of sort of dead trees and bushes that are sort of have been let to grow sort of weedy bushes and my instinct was sort of oh you don't want to be pulling this stuff up because it's there already but actually it was my dad who said no you have to clear all the stuff away because it's actually sort of um throttling the beautiful trees and the things that we really want there and it was amazing how once we sort of cleared away some of this stuff the shapes of the trees just looked completely different yes and looked amazing and it was and as you said it was that process of choosing what we want in the garden um and also, once I got stuck into clearing, I ended up being absolutely fine with it and getting quite carried away. Um, <laughs> and it's it's very satisfying <laughs> putting down pulling down dead wood and trees and you know and cutting everything up. Um, but yeah, and you could see the trees that there are some beautiful trees, but you couldn't really see them because they were so crowded out by all this other stuff. And as soon as we cleared that out, you got these beautiful shapes, and the trees just looked what was there looked so much better. Absolutely. Exactly. And you might find, you know, you might, I went to see a client the other day and she had, she has a big plum tree in the middle mm. of the room. And I've been to see her several times now. And each time we've talked about this plum tree and I am ambivalent. I think we could work around it. I'm not sure it has to come out, but she's absolutely decided it's not working for her. Mm. And She's planting so much other stuff that in the great scheme of things, she's going to end up with a much more wildlife-friendly, mm. ozone-protecting garden. Um, but it is a decision. And I respect her for choosing, actually, I'm going to be mm. here for 20-something years or 30-something years or hopefully, you know, however long it is. Um and I want to use that for something else that actually satisfies me and not be not be held back by it or annoyed by it or it's the Marie Kondo principle. Yeah. In the garden, really. Yeah, that's something that if it's there and you're looking after it, then it should be giving you joy. There should be a sort of a purpose. 
behind it. But again, it's it's a metaphor for life as well. That if you clear away stuff, then it allows what's there and what you're choosing to really thrive. Exactly. And you know, if I if I work with someone who finds it really really hard to decide and is is wanting six different styles and um really has found it very very difficult to make choice you can bet your bottom dollar that they're doing that in their de- in their day-to-day life as well mm. and she she is you know so it's really fascinating how we can learn about ourselves along with the making space and I think it really really matters that we women do this mm. And why and do you see that in your own life as well, that when you create more space for yourself, do you see that it makes a difference? Oh, absolutely. For sure. And I see the things that I, that get in my way <laughs> as well. Um, what are those things? So perfectionism, mm. you know, tendency to want to get it really, really right mm. and then not end up doing anything. Yep. Um, in my own podcast, I must have talked about it, I don't know, three times. I've talked about my marigolds. Okay. Because I've had a greenhouse now for a couple of years and I've been growing seeds and learning how to actually do that successfully. Because in my younger years, I didn't really have space in myself. There we go, space again. Mm. You know, I was after two young children. I was working full time. I found it very hard to make space to keep seeds alive and thriving. Um, and I didn't have anywhere physical to do that. They were in the in the spare room and I'd forget they were there and they'd be lanky before I got to them anyway so I've been learning how to successfully successfully raise seeds and I'm lucky enough now to have this lovely greenhouse and I raised marigolds um and they you know they among other things and they did and there's some beautiful colored marigolds now you know beautiful varieties and they came up and some of them I knew exactly where I wanted to put them in my veg patch around and I had specific uh, you know I wanted to make a, a row of them and I knew what I was doing and others I just wasn't quite sure and so I didn't do anything I sort of made the decision by not making the decision hmm. you know I made a decision by not doing anything and the ones outside grew and bushed and became big and luscious and the poor ones trapped in their nine centimetre pots in my greenhouse just sort of sat there and looked rather sad and never really recovered. Mm. So that was the first year. And then the second year, last year, this year, this year, I put many, 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 many of more out. And I thought, well, it's because my garden's in flux. I'm not exactly sure how best to use my veg patch yet. I'm learning. Well, if I make mistakes, then I'll just pull them out. Mm. And that was a much more satisfying process than throttling my poor plants Mm. and and can you see what I learned about myself and I've taken that into my life now much more and I'm you know I might be thinking about doing something and write a a message to someone and in the past I might have sat on it for five days and then I might not have you know pressed the button on it Mm. now I'm thinking actually I feel sure enough about this I'm just going to press the button and send it Mm. and it's so lovely not to procrastinate I might make mistakes and regret them but nothing dreadful is going to happen yeah I think because I think one of the things that I've really learned from my allotment as well is that 
that you are also very much at the um at the what's the word at the thing of the seasons yeah. and the weather um and it doesn't there's only so much that you can do ultimately and you can sort of do everything right but if you get you know a really dry patch and even if you're watering a great deal it yeah. doesn't make you know things will still stall and they won't grow and if you know there's only so much that you can do and you sort of do have to relinquish control um a little over it um because it doesn't matter you know there's there is only so much that you can do and ultimately there are things outside of your control that are going to going to affect um how things grow and isn't that just a wonderful lesson for life exactly and the other lovely lovely thing about the garden is that we get another shot at it mm. you know the seasons keep turning yeah. And I think that was really, it's always really next year. sorry. There's always next year. It's a kind of there's motto, I think. Yeah, there's always another season. And I think that was one of the things during lockdown that helped people turn to gardening. Mm. Because planting that seed just has so much hope in it. Mm. We don't plant a seed if we're not hoping for the future. It's yeah. a way of ensuring the future somehow. Mm. Um and and we get another shot. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. They, they, as I said, it's that thing of there's always next year, and if something doesn't work out, then you just sort of take what you've learned and try again. Um, yes. And also, there is always something that does work. Like when I've had, you know, when people sort of ask me about um, allotmenting and growing veg, I always just say, look, just start sowing seeds, seeing what works, what doesn't, and you will learn as you go. Um, you learn a lot more from doing it than you ever do from books. Absolutely, and there's that procrastination thing, isn't there? Mm. You know, I I think in my first year I was really nervous about was I doing this right? And and you you we can't well it's the same for everything, it's not just seeds, it's life, isn't it? Mm. We have to try stuff and when we try it we discover whether it works well for us or it doesn't, and then we refine and we do it a little bit differently. Mm. It's, I think my first year at my allotment, I, t- I had my ruler out measuring the gaps in between the plants. <laughs> that hasn't happened since. <laughs> um, and what do you think the impulse was? I think it was, it was, I was doing something new and I didn't know. And I wanted, I sort of had my book out there and I had my ruler and I just, I think it's, I think when you're doing and trying something new, there is that sort of feeling of vulnerability, I think. Um, and feeling very unsure and just sort of wanting to sort of follow, you know, follow guidance. But actually, um, it's, you know, it's been, I now sort of do it by eye, and I think I might have done some slightly too close, but it doesn't really matter. And knowing that actually what I think I come back to is plants want to grow, seeds want to grow. You just have to sort of help, you just have to not let anything get in their way, essentially. Yeah. And And we we want to grow too. Yeah, exactly. We want to release the things that don't work for us and find our sort of clearest um, way of being, less, less, least inhibited, most satisfying way of being. Hmm. And, and we can do that by turning to ourselves. Hmm. And I think the garden, and you know, the garden is a little microcosm of nature. It's, it's nature really, and it happens to be that I believe in gardens because they're right there and they give us that ownership and creativity and, you know, it's sort of like our little intimate priv- private space 
intersects with nature. Hmm. And what about your own garden? You mentioned that you've got a greenhouse recently. Um, yeah. But how long have you been in your house and how has your sort of your garden changed in that time? So, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been here now, I think coming up to, I think this October is the fifth year. Mm. Um, I didn't engage with the garden. It was really interesting because we came just as I was ill and it was all part of the same process, I think, of, of letting go of work and moving here. And that was all sort of a part of what, what was going on. And so I didn't engage with the garden for a while, quite a while. I was quite unwell and felt, and, and my perfectionism was was making it really difficult for me to start anything mm. because much bigger space than I've ever had before, ever, ever had before. And the people who were here before, it's the most wonderful curvy cottage we live in. It's a thatched cottage and it's 15th century and it's got a really cute the, the the thatch on the side looks like it's a, a pixie's hat you know it's a really really pretty little place but it was owned by a guy who liked straight straight lines mm. and the garden was all lawn and hedge immaculately cut hedge square you know oh, wow. set squares out to do the hedging and there was a lot of hedging low hedging box hedging all over the place um and it took me a long time to and it's part of what's informing growthly to get started. And I started small. I started with the pots I brought from from before and repositioning them and making them work for me. And then, then we decided to dig, dig a new bed in front of the house. And I planted that. And now the garden, I've taken a whole chunk of it for my greenhouse and veg beds. And in order to do that, I removed lavender hedging either side of the path my mother-in-law was horrified <laughs> when I was going to do this. Um, but it was in my way and I gave it to a neighbor and they grew it um, and I now have my veg beds and my greenhouse and the rest of the garden is in is in development I'd say because mm-hmm. um, we've got reasons for not wanting to, to to actually make the changes I want right now things we want to do with the house and so I've got a sort of temporary um, arrangement, which is enough to keep me satisfied and enough to support wildlife and not being one enormous lawn. We mm-hmm. made new, we made beds, which I've been sowing with a with a an annual mix every year. And although that doesn't have the length of season looking great that I'd like it to have. It's better than nothing, and it's not costing me a lot of money at the moment. Mm. So that's where my garden is now. But I am gradually, gradually doing more bits of it and learning um, about my veg and just taking ownership of this new space because my previous garden I was, was little, and I designed it and we had the hard landscaping done. And then I just, then it was mine and I just made it what I wanted. And I left that and that was really hard. Mm. Um, so here the spaces are bigger, there's more cost. You know, it's, it's, it's a process. It's mm. definitely a process. Mm. And I absolutely love it. 
And what, what is it that you love about it? Are there any things that you do specifically or any moments that you have during the day that, that you really, that really love and that really support you? Well, I'm talking to you in my studio, which is a, um, a building that was here when we came. It's oak and glass, and I have a stream that passes me by, which is how come I saw ducks at the beginning of the conversation. I've lately been singing, seeing a kingfisher who's oh, been landing. I know, just incredible. Who's been landing on a branch, which is the leaves have all died on the branch because it's autumn. And suddenly she's stopping here on her way along the stream. Mm. Um, so, and I look out on a piece of land opposite the stream, which doesn't belong to us, which is a protected piece of land. And that's, so it's, it's just, it's wonderful to have this gorgeous place to work. And I'm looking around me as we're talking and there's a willow tree and it's yellowing now and dropping its leaves. And I've planted a circus. Do you know a circus? No, I don't. It's got a wonderful heart-shaped leaf and it's got deep purple leaves generally. And right now they're vivid, vivid sort of crimson and orange and there's not so many leaves on it now. Mm. Uh, but it's just wafting in the wind as I'm talking to you. And I'm looking behind me where the sweet corn is still standing because I thought I'll leave them there for structure over the winter. And there's a, a couple of leeks that have gone to seed and their big heads are still there. <laughs> <laughs> there's just so much to enjoy actually in it. and. Before I came on the call, I was having a look at my pots by the back door and seeing what was happening there. And yeah, just noticing a few things that I could still pick. Mm. So I'll do that later. So lots of pleasure to be had. Yeah, it sounds magical. Um, yeah. And you know, it's by no means a perfect garden. Mm. Perfect, inverted commas, but... It's got stuff in it, and I think what I what I see a lot, and you know, quite often on Instagram, I'll see somebody who's really focusing on their house and doing amazing things on their in their house, and I'll I'll I always look for the garden, and I'll glimpse through the window the brown fence and the flat lawn and not very big a bed, and and I think, oh, you know, that's flat and it's boring and it's ugly, and come on. <laughs> you could get so much pleasure from that space outside as well as the space inside. I wonder why that is, why everyone is so, most people are so focused on their homes. And I think the idea of sort of spending money on your home and on your furniture and on decorating everything is sort of, we can sort of understand that. But then when it comes to the garden, it's, we so often forget about it and it sort of becomes the last thing. I wonder why that is. Well, I think the garden is perceived as more difficult. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I've worked with people who are fantastic in their homes, um, but just don't know where to start in the garden. And it's really interesting because I'm much better in the garden than I am at home. It's, it's like they're different skill sets. Um, I'm not bad in the house, but I don't have that sort of instinct like mm. I do in the garden. Um, I wonder whether there's something because in your home everything's quite fixed. Like you buy a piece of furniture and it doesn't change with the seasons unless you sort of change over your your cushions. Yeah. But in the garden you have to sort of be able to envisage 
what a plant is going to look like in spring, summer, autumn, winter. And put it in the right place, give it what it needs, mm. attend and and what i what i would you know what i really want to encourage people to do is to make their gardens into places where they need to do more than housework mm. a lot of what people call gardening is actually garden work mm. it's leaf collecting it's mowing it's weeding and when we plant our borders well we don't have to weed them once they're once they're doing their thing there's no space for weeds mm. because leaves can you know the leaves intersect and they create this wonderful tapestry of color and texture and form you know that's just so delicious and covers the soil so there's no weeds underneath mm. um and then of course then they feel better about the garden because it's not something that's producing a lot of work it's and that they feel guilty they haven't got around to weeding it's something that looks great. And those plants are characters that they have a relationship with. Mm. And that, I think that's the thing is, I think people think that that by creating a garden, they're giving themselves more work to look after it, but it can actually, as you say, be the opposite. I think it's, well, I wouldn't, I mean, I think you do, but it depends on how you define work as well. Mm. I think we still need to attend our gardens. There's no such thing as a, as a, well, I don't like the word maintenance. I think care for is a better word. Mm. There's no such thing as a, a garden that needs no care. However, when we turn that into an activity that lifts our hearts and feels creative and inspires us and we feel good about doing and that soothes our busy brains, mm. we feel like work. Mm. It, it's an activity that you look forward to and that you enjoy and that gives you, you know, as you say, that gives you pleasure and satisfaction. It's time out. It's mm. space. It's, it's a delight. Mm. Um, <laughs> there's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and w when we recorded back in August, it had sort of just happened. So it was a bit more recent. So now it's a few months ago. Um, but you wrote a post that um, I think really resonated and um, gave a lot of people a lot to think about um, on Instagram about your experience of being a Jewish woman and it was in response to Wiley's anti-Semitic tweets um, that he ranted yeah, pardon? He videoed as well, he ranted with oh, wow. okay. Well, there were vicious, nasty things. Yes. Um, I just wondered whether you want to say a little bit about um, why you came to write that post and um, sort of the motivation behind it and how it felt. Okay. Um, so I've been plugging away at Instagram, sharing what I know and what I love and what I think is important and connecting with people, enjoying what they post, sharing what they post. And I had watched the Black Lives, well, no, not watched. I mean, I engaged with the Black Lives Matter. Um, the, 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 that's that moment when everything went really, mm. really viral and we were all talking about it and, and being very conscious about it and... Um, 
engaging with it and sharing and learning and understanding more and having and opening our eyes in a way we hadn't done before or, or some of us hadn't done before mm. and and people were coming out and they were saying I'm anti-racist and I really I stand up I I believe in anti-racism and then I don't know what a month later six weeks later mm. this guy Wiley who's a rapper um, with a huge audience of very impressionable young people, you know, um, teenagers, had a rant. For three or four days, he ranted about Jews, and Jews were running the world, and Jews had all the money, and Jews were this, that, and the other. And it was really, really vile. And it turned out he'd had a an argument with his Jewish manager um, who'd been representing him for years and he had just gone on the rampage about it. And I, I was away the weekend it actually happened and so I wasn't really paying attention to my phone. And then on the way home, I wasn't driving and I started having a little look at what had been going on. My daughter had posted something about anti-Semitism and about it and I picked up and put out quite sort of cautiously um, a couple of things about anti-semitism and about Wiley and shared just on my stories about what was going on imagining naively <laughs> turned out that people would share them Mm. That in the same way that Black Lives Matter had been shared, people would get behind us and realise that this was disgusting and share. Mm. And it happened. And and the next day I shared a few th more things and I got really, I was getting really quite upset. I was thinking, you know, I put a lot of energy and love into connecting with people on this platform and I thought I had relationships here um, that matter and that make a real difference. And I felt really, really let down and angry and hurt. Mm. And I don't know, maybe three days in. Oh, there had been another. There had been a, a hashtag. There, there was a boycott. Hashtag no. There was a blackout. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, Somebody created a blackout and said, we're going to boycott Twitter and Instagram for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Might have even been 48 hours. And I signed up to this. I put out that I was going to do that. And then after 12 hours, I was just feeling completely, you know, it's like my mouth was zipped. Mm. And it was making me feel worse not being able to engage with it because I'd said I wouldn't. So mm. I... So I woke up one morning and I just, I got straight out of bed. I think I must have been thinking about it all night. And I wrote a post and I called it, I've changed my mind, which referred to the boycott and the fact that I was breaking the boycott. And I talked about the fact that I'm a Jewish woman and that I have ancestors who came in the late 19th century, two young men from um, Eastern Europe um, on their own to find a safe and better life. And, 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 and the discrimination I experienced at school and 
the little digs that I notice that just go on all the time, subtle digs, mm. characters on television who are obviously Jewish and are painted in a really bad light. You know, mm. it happens. I was reading a book the other day, I forget what it was called, and there was this Jewish guy in it who was really vile. And I'm thinking, okay, so why? Why are you making this guy Jewish and why are you making him vile? Somebody's choosing that. Mm. Um, and so I wrote this post and I talked about my experiences and at the end I said, you know, and if you're brave enough to ask yourself how come you were able to stand up and say I'm anti-racist and now you're ignoring what's happening with why what Wiley has been saying and the fact. And the main thing about that was that Instagram and Twitter weren't taking it down mm. for days. This disgusting, vile stuff was there. Mm. And they took about four days to take it down, something like that. And so I asked my audience, my followers, community is a better word, isn't it? My community. Um, to, 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 to examine their consciences, really, mm. to think about how come they had not responded to this and to wonder whether they were holding some taught, learned belief that Jews actually are really rather unpleasant. Um, and I said, you know, because we're just human, we make mistakes. Some of us are rich, some of us are poor. Some of us are clever, some of us are not. Some, you know, we, we're, we're just humans mm. and, and we don't deserve to be spoken about like this. Mm. And I also talked about the Holocaust and I had a genetic test that I'd bought months earlier that I didn't quite dare send off. And in fact, in the end, my daughter said to me, Mum, if you're not going to do it, shall I? So she did. <laughs> Um, which has been fascinating, actually. Um, but I didn't dare send it off because I know that I have ancestry or relatives who will have perished in the Holocaust. Mm. But at the moment, I don't know who they are. And I've got that sort of false sense of protection that I don't actually know. But I knew that if I did an ancestry test and suddenly came into contact with people who do know that I would find out. And... Mm. I didn't feel brave enough to do that. So, does that answer your question? It does. It does. Um, and yeah, and and thank you for um, for talking and explaining so you know so openly about it. Because I I know that we've spoken before that when you were growing up, um, you were sort of taught I think to sort of not talk about being Jewish and to sort of not necessarily hide but to sort of play it down a bit. Oh, there's still a thing that if you're in a restaurant as a group and you're talking about something Jewish, you might whisper, mm. you know, so that people at the next table don't know you're Jewish. Um, and what is that about? But yes, my mother, I think I started my post like this, actually. My mother didn't like having her name written on a list, like a synagogue list or mm. something that would obviously be identifiable as Jewish in case the Nazis came, and this was Leeds in the 1970s. It's, that, it's the collective trauma that has, you know, that has been passed down. It is. It is. And, you know, I am 
well, as I say, I'm fortunate enough not to actually know the names and actual connections, relatives of mine who perished. But I have friends whose parents survived or grandparents survived. Mm. And, it, and it has an impact. We are, you know, they say it takes seven generations to clear something, don't they? Mm-hmm. You are impacted by seven generations before. How do you impact seven generations? So it's it's so recent. And it's not just the Holocaust. Jews have been persecuted throughout history. Mm. And it's a very, it's it as you say, it's insidious. The anti-Semitism is it, it's it's obviously it expresses itself in different ways, but there's it's the language and the stereotypes and the assumptions that sort of have crawled their way in to our culture and our society, and it's it's up to us to sort of obviously there's a there's a um, there's a very obvious anti-semitism sort of such as what Wiley um as he said ranted about but it's also it's the other things and it's us noticing that the same with anti-racism it's noticing the thought patterns and the assumptions and the um and the things that you think about unconsciously and recognizing them and holding them up and saying why you know why do I think this why is this a thing um and examining them and that's you know and that's what we've got to do Absolutely, absolutely. And oh, I had a thought just as you were speaking, which should now. And it's about the language we use. Mm. That was what I um, I was. I think it was. Do you know the temperate gardener Sue? Yes, I do. So she posted this weekend about an article in the Telegraph. Yes, I saw. You see that. Uh, and what she was posted, this article was talking about what the Telegraph writer, the, the author, was calling decolonization of museums and galleries. And he was talking specifically about the Pitt Rivers collection in Oxford. Mm. And he, he had interviewed people on what he called both sides of the argument or debate. But the way that the, the, the article was phrased right from the first, right from the get-go, mm. was something like generations of people have enjoyed these artefacts and now we can't look at them anymore. You know, it was just so, what was it? It was so um, biased yeah. and white-centric and colonial centric it was just appalling actually and I think it's it's so much of this goes under this sort of banner or this idea of and it's a sort of the BBC impartiality thing of we have to show both sides of an argument but when one side is hate and hate speech and um discrimination and racism why are we giving a platform to that but this wasn't even that. I think this was even more subtle than that, actually, because the author, the person who mm. wrote this, wrote it from his perspective, white British male. Obviously. Obviously. And was completely unaware that that was what he was doing. So even though he felt that he was making a balanced article, his editor did not pick it up and say, actually, you know what, this is not okay. Mm. We can't publish this. And the comments 
after, you know, the people made comments. Um, I actually spoke to Sue and what she said it was it was like a sort of beckoning, you know, it was like an invitation for people to mm. come out and agree with this bias. And the comments afterwards are disgusting. And as of yesterday, apparently they were still up. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, I, it's so difficult to know what to say because it's just, it's so frustrating and anger inducing that 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 is that that is happening and that there is no one saying or no one in the the problem is there's no one in the positions of power saying um you know this isn't okay there's not enough women up there there's not there's not enough women there's not enough people of color there's not enough people there's just not enough diversity okay so I feel like it's sort of you know to sort of begin to end to round the conversation and perhaps sort of you know um yeah to let's sort of begin to round up and I ask everyone um what has been for you um Sarah the best thing about living uh, the worst thing so I start with that the worst thing about living life a little differently oh gosh I hadn't remembered you were going to ask that. <laughs> what's been the most difficult thing about living life I think it was in the early days when I was first becoming conscious mm. you know they the consciousness raising in the 60s and they'd have groups for women to go and raise their consciousness but I I became aware of the ways in which I wasn't self-determining my life mm-hmm. and I had found, and I found myself already living in a way that wasn't really working for me um and needed to start setting some boundaries, start defending my position as a woman who's entitled to explore and choose her way of living. Um, and I wasn't living in a way that really allowed me to do that. So I think the beginning, the early stages of, of self-awareness and wanting more for myself, and needing to, it felt like needing to fight for it, mm. fight to be understood. I think that's probably what was, has been the, mm. that worst thing. And what about the best thing? The best thing about living a life a little differently. I guess it depends what you mean by differently, doesn't it? Um, I think the, the best thing about living life a little differently is... Well, if I think about my work and I think about a session I did yesterday and seeing that woman click Mm. and suddenly get, oh, oh, okay, I can think about this differently. I can think about this space that we're discussing and myself and take notice of myself, and choose for myself. And so I think what's been, I find what is amazing about having chosen to not live with the status quo, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Mm. Um, Is that I now feel as though I have a bit of, I don't know, sort of, I feel solid in it, enough to be sharing it, and trusting myself 
a lot of the time and not all the time but you know trusting myself a lot of the time and I think there's something that's really really valuable hmm. that I can share with women because I've been through it myself um and I yeah I completely agree and I think as you say it's that sort of when when you see someone who is choosing how they want to live and choosing their work and choosing how they want to feel it has a knock-on effect absolutely um and that's and that's what you're doing and of course it's what other women are doing too and Mm. I'm learning from them and yeah I think it's what we need to do we need to be and that's why I love Instagram so much Mm. you know kind of love hate relationship um but a lot of what I find on there is inspiring and wise and joyous and generous Mm. and there's a lot of wisdom Mm, I agree um Sarah thank you so much um for taking time yet again to talk to me (laughs) Um, a pleasure because I think our conversation actually has deepened and developed since last time I agree. I think having listened to the previous one quite a few times, um, I agree. Um, <laughs> I haven't done actually, but yeah, I just have a sense. Yes. Yeah. No. It's um. It's been really lovely. So thank you again so much. And thank you because it's yes, it's very lovely to be given the the space um, to consider these questions and to to have the time to go into them quite richly it's been a rich conversation thank you Sarah Sarah has recently launched garden design well-being coaching three or six months of one-on-one support to help you create a garden you love that supports your mental well-being you can find out more about this and her other packages on her website www.growthfully.co.uk Thank you so much for all your support this season. I'll be back next year with some more conversations about living life a little differently. In the meantime, please do follow me over on Instagram. I'm at F Barrows. Thank you again so much for listening. Take care. Bye.